Welcome to A Journey of Transformation Empowerment. You're listening to Antonio T. Smith Jr. Where ideas ignite, change, and possibilities are endless. Before we dive into today's episode, we have something special for our listeners. Today's podcast is brought to you by a groundbreaking book that's reshaping the conversation around Black economic empowerment. It's Resegregation, Volume 1, The Power Matrix, a master plan for Black group economics with wealth creation, authored by visionary Antonio T. Smith, Jr., Antonio isn't just an author. He's a former top-secret combat special operations intelligence sergeant turned millionaire. His life work championed the economic autonomy and wealth creation within black communities. In this seminal work, dedicated to teachings of Dr. Claude Anderson, Antonio outlines a comprehensive blueprint covering critical sectors like finance, technology, manufacturing, and more. He blends military discipline with acute understanding of systematic disparity. This isn't just a book. It's a movement. A call to action to create lasting wealth and reshaping the economic narrative. Antonio's vision is clear. Drive a significant shift toward black ownership and control. Listeners, if you've ever wondered about innovative strategies for wealth creation or how technological transformation can uplift the black communities, then this book is for you. Join Antonio Smith Jr. on the transformative journey. Pick up your copy of The Resegregation Volume 1, The Power Matrix today and be a part of the reshaping future. Now, let's dive into the episode and explore the possibilities that await us. Lecture 4, Matthew 1, 1. It's genealogy. Amen. We're good to be with all of us this morning. Um... As usual, I'd like to start off with prayer. Prayer is always in order. Uh, God, we come to you right now. We thank you and we bless your holy name. We are very appreciative of you waking us up this morning. We realize it was not our alarm clock or our internal clock or any other clock that takes credit away from you and your power. It was you and you have done these things well and you have always done these things well. And for that, we say thank you. Give us the peace to go out into a sin-filled world and preach your gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, so we've been doing our series because that's just what I like to do. And remember the first week, I didn't really have a title for it. I came up with a title for it the second week, and it was posing the question, what would the gospel be? Or what would the message of the New Testament be if the New Testament only consisted of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Very powerful question. 
Uh, we've been diving in pretty deep. and Right now we're still in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew for at least one more week. Actually, here's what we're going to do, just so you can know. It's a 20-part series. Uh, no, sorry, 16-part series, so we're, or maybe a 20. We're going to do a bunch, even amount in Matthew, even amount in Luke, even amount in Mark, even amount in John, and we're going to discover what the gospel is. Does that make sense? Right. So... We definitely know what the gospel is because Paul defines for us what the gospel is. And this is extremely uh, scholarly. It's, it's, it's up there, but it's not, it's not super up there. I actually teach a class on this, which is even more up there. So this is, but this is up there. This is, yeah, you, you can't, you, you definitely need to love the Lord and be intimate with him to, to, to enjoy this here. And so that is the question that we're posing, and it's a deep question. It's a deep question on many respects. What would the message of the New Testament be if it only consisted of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And that eliminates a lot of our theology today. Now, as a disclaimer, because I've already said it in week one, and I'll go ahead and say it again, this is not to say that anybody outside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said anything different than Jesus Christ said. Amen. Amen. This is not to say that there's contradictions in the Bible or errors, because there's absolutely not. Amen. So this would be eliminate all of that right now. There's nothing to do with that. There was a gospel culture that was already present. And we've lost that culture because we don't quite, we don't quite understand, because we're no longer in the first century, so we're not first century Jews, we're 20 centuries removed from the first century, and so we don't quite understand the gospel. And think about it for a second. If you were to tell me what, two things, if you were to ask, answer the question, what would the gospel be, and we covered this in week one, this little review, you have to go, well, I don't know. Because if you go, if I ask you, what's the message of the Bible? And then, I mean, message of the Bible, the New Testament, if it only consisted of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have to go, well, I don't know. That's a bit hard because you can't say justification by faith, right? Because that's what Paul says. And the only time Jesus Christ ever mentioned justification was one time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We discovered that in week one was the parable, actually, um, not, was the, the pericope, the episode of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And just a side note, if you've never been to that, go ahead and read that. And uh, it's a very... <laughs> It's a very deep and also entertaining uh, pericope because sometimes we do act just like that Pharisee. You know, God, God, you did a good job when you made me. And so it's entertaining when we can see how foolish we once were. And if you don't see how foolish you once were, then you're probably still the Pharisee, right? Amen, amen. And so and it, it begs a question because you, you can't say, well, you can't say justification about works. Although James doesn't necessarily argue that, he is proving that works has something to do with salvation, because that, that's James. Again, that this, all these things are outside. And so it begs us to question, what do we actually know about the gospel? Now, I'm going to give you a big tidbit right now. The gospel cannot be stated in one sentence. We'd love to. we love to say the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, comma, according to scriptures. And most of us leave comma, according to scriptures, out. But it can't just be said in that sentence in which we'll prove this over the course of this series. However, that is a great way to start. The death, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the short way. The truth is, 
if you wanted to fully explain the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the, the, the narrative of God, what the gospel is, it would take you at least 10 minutes to explain all of what God has done. And we're going to cover about, we're going to cover one, no, we're going to cover two sections of that 10 minutes today. We have no choice, but it's amazing how what God did was so rich that it can't just be described in one word or one sentence, yet even when we do describe it in one word or one sentence, we don't fully catch what God has done. A lot of us, we're a New Testament church, and we kick and abandon the Old Testament, which is a very bad thing to do because God did not start over. Amen. God continued his plan that he had with the birth of the Garden of Eden, with the birth of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, at pro euangelion. He, God has never made a mistake. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. So he didn't come back with Jesus Christ to fix his mistake. He came back with Jesus Christ to fix man. Amen. Okay. And, but, but unintentionally, we, we say these things by accident, and we don't really understand or we don't really understand the unintended side effects of what we're saying. So here's another question before we get to or we actually are started, but here's another question. So when you say the Gospels, it is almost, it is very culturistic of us to say that there's four Gospels, or no, Gospels plural with an S at the end. But the truth is, these folk knew and understood the Gospel as one Gospel, as you should, because it says the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? When he's saying the Gospel of Jesus Christ, he's not saying the Gospels of Jesus Christ. No writer has said, hear ye the Gospels of Jesus Christ. They are clearly saying there is a gospel, one gospel. And so it begs to differ, it, well, it at least begs the question to ask, why did it take four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and John, according to church tradition, why did it take those four to tell one gospel? Right there, we figure out and find out part of our answer right now, that the early church realized that each one of these writers, although different, Although different people, although written at different times, although containing different content, and some of it not even, uh, or some of it completely unique to its own book, this, these four clearly told one story. And, and it, so it becomes powerful when we do that. So what is the one story that all four of these writers are writing about, but different from one another? And so now we come to what is the gospel, right? Or in this case, what if is what we're calling this 16 to 20 week series. I'm not sure how long it's going to be just yet. But here's the deal. What if or what is the, the message of the New Testament if it only existed with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It forces you to have to know Jesus Christ. One more thing before we open up and tell you what. Actually, I'm going to tell you where we're going right now. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going. But, but walk with me for a second while you turn there because this is an important question. And the reason I'm so passionate about this question and the reason this question is something I want to ask you. Because I must admit to you, freshman year at Houston Baptist University, as I'm going through um, my 
bachelor's degree in Christianity, I thought I knew some stuff. I just, you know, because I knew some verses. And I knew them all, basically. Like I was, I could quote to you, you, you talk, and I knew where you were. Because I labored and labored in God's word. And that was a good thing. Because at least I labored in God's word. But here's what I discovered freshman year, first day of class. It was, a doc, it was uh, Dr. Fu Lu. He, I haven't talked to him in a while. I actually have his phone number. But now he's, he's being mentioned right now. So here it is. Dr. Fu Lu posed a question to all his class. He said two things. I'll never forget it. He said, you cannot talk in this class if you don't know where you're arguing from. He says, if you're going to talk in this class, you can talk as much as you want to. But you can't say, well, in the Bible. No, you have to say where. You don't necessarily have to say what book, what verse, what chapter, but you have to at least say where Matthew says, and then you can talk. Because we so often go way in the Bible, and we're wrong when we do it, or we take it out of context when we do it. And thus, he led to his next question. He said, what would be the message of the New Testament if it only contained Matthew, Mark, Luke? And John. And then he said, most of you don't know Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't trying to diss us or, or, or talk bad to us. The truth is, Pastor Temple, we knew Paul. Because we're Protestants. And we knew all of Paul's writings. Because if you have a pastor worth his salt or her salt, she or he will preach to you from Paul. Because they are pastoral letters. They are of correction. And so I realized first day of class that I knew every single thing about Paul that you can write about, say about. But if you quoted something that Jesus said, I didn't know which gospel it was in. Does that make sense? I didn't know where. But if you said, confess with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord. I, oh, let's just go to Romans 10. I, right? if, you, if, if you said, I beseech you, therefore, bro, oh, let's go to Romans 12. I knew exactly where Paul said things, but then when you said something, be, be aware of the, uh, the yeast of the Pharisees, I didn't know where he was. So the truth is, we don't know because somehow we've done one or two things. We've separated the Old Testament and New Testament, which is okay and is not okay. You have to do it Moderately, you have to understand the continuity, which means Old Testament, New Testament have the same things going on. And then you have to also respect the discontinuity that there, are, there is something clearly different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even more so of the fact the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament is hard to understand if you did not have the New Testament. Amen. You would never understand the power of the scapegoat if you didn't see the power of the scapegoat die on the cross. Does that make sense? You, you would never understand um, in numbers when the serpent was lifted up and people were saved, then you wouldn't understand that Jesus says, well, if I be lifted up also. And so many things will fail to come to your realization because without the New Testament, we don't get the light of the Old Testament. We never get to see the prophet that Moses was talking about. 
We're still waiting on him. We, we never get to see the exodus from slavery again, but this time it's a slavery by sin in Babylon. We don't get to see the new exodus because we, if we miss the New Testament, then we're missing some things that God had in his narrative in the Old Testament. So, all that super-duper mouthful being said, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Because it's important for us to realize, respect, and just take in that God did not start over. That Jesus Christ was on purpose. That what God did is exactly what God did. It is important to understand that what God did, come, come, come on in, what God did was have his story being fulfilled. Now, listen to this here. We're, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, for those of you just walking in. And so we've been in this series, just a, a super duper recap since you just walked in. We're asking the question, what is the message of the Bible? Excuse me, what is the message of the New Testament if it only existed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Hard question, right? What is the message of the New Testament if it only contained Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And we can't say justification by faith because that's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anything like that. So that's what we're covering right now. This is like the third or fourth week. So we have to see this continuity. Now watch how Matthew, all we're doing is verse 1, but keep your Bibles open because I'm going to prove to you what Matthew does in one verse. To the regular or two, if you are, if God has not revealed, this is the way I want to say this. If God has not given you revelation of Matthew 1, chapter 1, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you'll miss what Matthew was trying to tell his audience. Read it. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew in that one, this, okay, somebody do me a favor. Count, count those words for me, please. Count those words. How many words is that in English? <clears throat> 16 words in English? Okay, 16 words in English. Matthew would have been writing in Greek. Uh, I didn't bring my Greek uh, New Testament, but it's probably, I don't know, 13 words in Greek. I'll, I'll have the answer for you next week. But here's the deal. In 13 and 16 words, Matthew says a whole bunch about Jesus Christ. Check it out, because this is important, because in order for us to understand the message of the gospel, in order for us to understand what the gospel is, we must first and foremost understand that the gospel has everything to do with the story of Israel. This is every single thing to do with the gospel that happens in the New Testament is a continuation and a fulfilling of the story of Israel, which we'll prove this over and over again. But this is important because Matthew begins this way. Let's read it again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, there's two things going on right there that you need to, it needs to jump out at you. First off, genealogy. You need to understand that the Hebrews... And in this case, the Jews, since they're in the New Testament at this time, these Jewish people, all they had was their lineage. That's it. They didn't have credit scores, um, you know, applications they fill out online. They didn't have stock markets or anything. Whatever we say that is our legacy, whatever we say that makes us, you know, rich, they, were, they weren't working for retirement at 65. 
all they had was we are from the line of somebody, which was Abraham, right? That's it. Because, because why? Why is being of the line of Abraham so important? We'll cover that. But to a first century Jew, Matthew says so much in Matthew 1, verse 1. So genealogy was important. That's what you need to get right there. Genealogy was exceedingly important because if you were not of the line of Abraham, you were not saved. You could not get back to the Garden of Eden. You could not experience salvation. And there's another question. What is salvation according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? right? We, get, we get more of salvation, the picture of it in Revelation and, and, and um, James and things like that. But you got to understand, if you were in Matthew's community, you didn't have Google. You didn't have a car. So all you had with Matt was Matthew's writings. So everything you knew about the gospel was of Matthew. You couldn't play gospel gumbo because you may not have had Mark's gospel to tell you that if you don't, uh, there is no way you can ever get divorced, period, point blank. And Matthew comes back and says, well, you know, uh, infidelity, things like that, right? And so you have to understand that these are communities that only had, in most part, one gospel, one letter, one letter. That's it. You get the benefit of having the 66 books of the Bible, which is actually post-Protestant uh, Reformation, right? You get the benefit of this here, but they did not. So they have to know what the gospel is, and they know, but we don't know because we've lost, it got lost between us. And so what is this gospel? So listen to what Matthew is saying. In the book, in the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Now, First and foremost, Matthew is saying even more now. Now he's saying he's identifying whose genealogy that he will be talking about. But then he gives this person that he's identifying, this, this Jesus, he gives to him a disambiguator. Well, he gives him the greatest disambiguator of all time. A disambiguator is something that identifies or takes away the ambiguity of a person's title. So it would be David son of Jesse. Now we know exactly which David we're talking about. We're not just talking about all the Davids. We're talking clearly about son of Jesse. That's a disambiguator. And so now Matthew is going, Jesus, but which one? Because there, there, there are, there were many of Jesus is what Greek would call it, right? There were many. Joseph and Jesus, Joseph of the Old Testament, not Joseph, Joshua of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament have the same Hebrew name. So which which Yeshua, which one? And he's saying the Christ. In Greek, that the different article is still there. So it's Jesus the Christ, which is a title, which is a messianic title, which is the greatest disambiguator of all time. Not just any Yeshua, but the Christ. So what is or who is the Christ? Well, Christ and, and you'll say it's anointing one, right? This is, this is the, Jesus is the word. This is the anointing one. The anointing one is an English uh, rendition of the Messiah. Okay? So Messiah is Hebrew for king. Okay? Uh, okay? So, so it's Melech, right? But Messiah is this Messianic Hebrew. And so now you have Christ, which is Greek for Messiah. And Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. And they all mean king. Okay, don't miss this here. This is important. Because Jesus isn't just Jesus. He's Jesus the king. He's been sent to rule 
over his subjects. But then he tells you how he's going to rule in John, which we'll get to later. No longer do I come here to call you servants. I came here to call you friends. So he rules us not with power, but with love, which is the greatest power of all time. And so Matthew says, listen, this Jesus Christ is the king. King. There is no other. There is no greater. He is the king. Jesus, the king. Jesus, the king. Um, Jesus, and then the definite article, which one is here, going by memory. Jesus, ha, Christos, right? The king. Jesus, the king. It simply means that this Jesus was somebody that only God could have sent. Now, watch how he proves it. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let us discover how Paul, I mean, excuse me, how Matthew opens and introduces his gospel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 1. But notice that Matthew, before Matthew writes anything, before Matthew says that Jesus healed people, before he did the Beatitudes, the first thing Matthew says is, listen, in the genealogy, the king, who is the son of David and of Abraham, He's, he's intentionally identifying who this Yeshua is. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look at it. So when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll find out that you, sitting, you are sitting smack in the middle of what scholars would call the Davidic covenant. It is the covenant in which Jesus, excuse me, it is the covenant in which God, Yahweh, made with David. Here's what's going on in verses 1 through 8 approximately. David is saying, you know what, I just realized that here I am living in cedar and the great, the finest of things. Yet the Lord's ark is going from tent to tent. And he goes to Nathan and he says, Nathan, listen, this is a problem for me because God shouldn't be treated lesser than I am when he is more than I can ever be. And Nathan says, well, I'll tell you what, go do whatever in your heart. Go ahead and go. If you want to build, go ahead and build. And that night, God comes to Nathan and says, listen, listen, um, that's not going to happen that way. And, and so let's, let us read about verse 8 and let's see, what, let's see what ensues from this dialogue. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following sheep, that you should be prince, some translation would say leader, over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have went, cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you, watch it, a great name. And like the great ones of earth, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people of Israel to plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Skip on down to verse 15. But my steadfast love, steadfast in Hebrew is hesed. This, we don't even have a proper rendition of this, 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 this word. It's, it's, it's so, God's mercy is so abound, we don't even have a proper word to explain how good and merciful God is. Right? So my, my steadfast, my, my, my steadfast love will not depart from him. He's talking about Samuel at this time. Right. He's saying, Sam, excuse me, not Sam. He's talking about Solomon. Solomon will build the temple. But watch how watch how God shifts everything. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now watch it. And your house 
and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. He's saying, listen, you're not going to build a temple your son is. and Your son's going to do a good job. And then when he, when he do bad, I'm going to chastise him. However, he still will be of me and I still will never depart from him. And then God says, but at the same time, I want to make sure that your kingdom through Solomon and through all of your seed shall have no end. It will reign forever, thus becoming the Davidic covenant. God promised the people of Israel, no matter what happens, no matter who conquers you, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens in your, uh, your ancestors' lives, I will make sure that your throne will last forever. You can have kings over you, it doesn't matter. You will reign forever. You can have kings over you, besides you. You can lose your kingdom. You will reign forever. This is the Davidic covenant. And these people, these Hebrew people are excited about this Davidic covenant because it rules every single thing about them because now they find themselves in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament and Rome is kings over them. And they're desperately waiting for God to make this covenant come true. So, and, and so the Pharisees are like, well, remember last time we sinned, God sent an oppressor. Y'all get y'all act together because clearly we're being oppressed by the Romans. Now watch it. Why? But, but, but why does Matthew stress that Jesus is the son of David? Your kingdom will have no end. Here's a fun fact that if you are, if God is, if you've ever had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, this is about to make you shout. Notice how Jesus had no need for children. If you understand anything about kingdom and spreading your kingdom, you must have an heir. For the throne. And it was customary for when you are defeated, it was customary for the king, the new king, to wipe out the old, old king, all his male ancestors, not just his kids, but then they kids' kids and they kids' cousins, nephews. Everybody had to be wiped out because you cannot take over this throne because I'm now the new king. But watch, pay attention to this here because Jesus never has any heirs. Why? Because Jesus shall never die. Lord have mercy. <laughs> right? That should make you shout right there. He died, was resurrected, and now he shall live forever, thus making David's kingdom reign forever. So when Matthew opens up, Matthew says, well listen, um, this is Jesus the king, who is the son of David the king. And to a first century Jew, they understand exactly. The opening up, they, the opening up, they understand Matthew just made a bold statement. Matthew is saying, this is the son of David. Have you ever noticed that when the women, especially the woman that wanted the crumbs to fall from the master's table, she says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's his messianic title. But then look again here. Look, then he says, son of David. Now he says, son of Abraham. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 12. And then you'll find out in Genesis chapter 12, you'll find the Abrahamic covenant. And so let me give you the verses we're going to cover, and this is where we're going to end in the next five or, five or six minutes. Genesis chapter 12 begins with the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And Genesis chapter 17, we're going to focus on verse 10. Okay, let's go with 12 first. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1. 
through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred and your father's house to the land. I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Didn't he just tell didn't, didn't David just get hurt? Say that same thing. I'll make your name great. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Watch it. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and watch it. And in all the families on earth shall be blessed. This is called the Abrahamic covenant in which God, Yahweh at this time, he's still Yahweh. Yahweh, this is how they know him though. Yahweh is saying to them, saying to Abram, listen, I'm getting ready to call you to have a whole nation rule with me. But I'm not doing this to be racist. I'm not doing this just to call out Jews. I'm not, because you don't, you're not worthy. I'm just, I just happen to pick you. So all the nations is what that text says. Not, not, not just Hebrews, all Chinese, it doesn't matter. Every nation on earth would have an opportunity to be saved. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 6. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And so it says, after these things, now well, let, me, let me set this up real quick. So God has been silent. And David, Abraham has done exactly what God has done. It's been about 20-something years of silence. And Abraham was like, listen, I still, well, let's go with the text. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is one of his servants. And Abram said, behold. You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household would be an heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now watch how God repeats himself. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And, believe, and he believed the Lord, and he was counted into him righteousness. Let's go to Genesis chapter 17. Now watch how God, in verse 10, watch how God gives Abram the sign of the covenant that he has given him. Okay? And, and then this time now, Abram is Abraham now. Okay? He's Abram 12 and 15. Now he's Abraham because God's getting ready to change his name and also changes his destiny. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Son of David and also son of Abraham. Now watch how obedient God, Jesus Christ, is. Jesus Christ did not come to abolish anything about the law or anything about the prophets or anything about the writings. Because if you remember, Jesus, according to the Gospels and very specifically in John, Jesus, on the eighth day, his blood was shed in the temple. His, the first time Jesus' blood was shed was not on the cross. It was on the temple on the eighth day during that circumcision. And so Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant by having by showing the sign of the Abrahamic covenant when he himself is the embodiment of the Abrahamic covenant. And then Jesus 
is of the line of Abraham. This is why Jesus was of no other nationality but Hebrew. He wasn't Babylonian. He wasn't Greek. He wasn't Italian, which will later come Italian. He wasn't Roman. He was Jewish. Why? Because the letter of the law said that your child of Abraham and also the child of David shall be the one who will save the whole world. And so now we're getting a bit more big, bigger pieces of this gospel. We think we have to wait all the way until Paul begins to talk about the gospel, which Paul wrote first and Paul missionary first. And all Paul's letters outdate the gospels. They're much earlier, a whole generation earlier. You need to know that these writers are understanding that what Jesus did was because the story of Israel. And David, excuse me, Matthew was not leaving out any of this story. From the very, he opens up his book by saying genealogy, by saying David, and well, excuse me, by saying genealogy, by giving Jesus his messianic title, and then by saying David, son of David, and also son of Abraham. So what is the message of the gospel if it only contained Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The first thing we discovered before this lesson a couple of weeks ago is seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. We've been right here in Matthew that whatever the gospel is, whatever the gospel is, God wants us to seek him first. Whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it shall be, seek him first and he'll add unto you what is of that knowledge. And then we learned last week about the Beatitudes that, 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 that God had a, a specific plan for us and he's not coming to abolish the law. And now we're learning that even the writers of the Gospels who wrote the Gospels talked about one Gospel. And right now that one Gospel is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the genealogy and this messianic title. And this is exactly why in Luke chapter 4 they get angry with Jesus for rolling down the scroll and saying the one you've been looking for is the one you've been looking at. This day has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me pray for you. Lord, we come to you we thank you that we are gaining a greater understanding a textual understanding a conservative true Holy Spirit revealed understanding of your gospel you see God we live in a time in which we want to water things down and put some candy cotton on it and get people in but the word still works and we've just learned that in one sentence, Matthew educated his people. May we all have the education of Matthew's community, the first century Jews, to where when a pastor gets up and speaks one sentence, we will understand about 30 minutes of information and 30,000 years what you've done for the story of Israel. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. When the pandemic began, I had the biggest problem in the world. Not making money. The pandemic was actually quite a blessing for me as 
it almost made me a billionaire. I came really close. So the pandemic was a blessing. It was hiring people. And get this, everybody. I had 48 job positions open during the pandemic. $22 an hour with paid training. And I could not find a single person for two years to fit any of those 48 job positions. Hear me well. 48 job positions. $22 an hour. Paid training. And I couldn't find someone, not one person, for those job positions. Now, is it because I hire slowly? True. But it's because I wasn't using ZipRecruiter. And that's a fact. I wasn't getting to the right people for the right position to fit my right culture. And there are so many different things that you can do this summer. As a matter of fact, you can free up as much time as you want to. But if you're not using ZipRecruiter, you're probably not going to free up that time if you're attempting to hire people. So what is ZipRecruiter? What is probably the greatest job finder that's out there? And that's why you need ZipRecruiter. You need it so you can find the right candidates. Now, it's not that ZipRecruiter helps you find jobs. It's more accurately that ZipRecruiter takes your culture, takes your job, takes what you're looking for, and immediately matches them with the perfect candidate. And if the if it's if they can't find a perfect candidate, they will skip over that person and then give you the perfect candidate for you. ZipRecruiter uses one of its most powerful tools, which is the technology itself, to match the right candidates up with your job. You can easily review uh, their recommendations and easily review their recommended candidates and invite these candidates to apply for your top positions. Additionally, ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy for you to filter out, uh, review, and rate candidates. Four out of five employees uh, have been used by four out of five employers on ZipRecruiter. It is a blessing. And no wonder ZipRecruiter is rated number one hiring site in the world based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of this year, January 1st. My friends, soak up everything I said. It's not an ad. This is a personal testimony of how I found the right people to sit in the right seat on the right bus. Without ZipRecruiter, it wouldn't have been possible. So how do you take advantage of what I'm talking about? Well, you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. All spelled the regular way. That's Zip, Z-I-P, Recruiter, R E C R U I T E R zip recruiter dot com slash B to B. And I promise you, you will be grateful that you did so. Again, that's zip recruiter dot com slash B to B. It's also in the show notes.